Lab talk with Laura. Listen, I implore ya. Won't never bore ya. Lab talk with Laura. Always more in story. Lab talk with Laura. Okay, uh, welcome to the 30th episode of Lab Talk with Laura. We're going to have kind of a special episode today. Um, joining me here in the studio, I've got Caroline Ladlow. She's a graduate student and research assistant in the geoscience department here at UMass. Um, and she's also an AGU voice for science advocate. AGU is the American Geophysical Union, um, which she's a member of, I'm assuming. Yeah, <laughs> obviously. Yeah. Um, I'm a member of that too. It's um, really people who study all sorts of earth and planetary science related disciplines, um, a really large organization that covers a lot of different science. Today's episode's a little bit unique. We'll be talking to Caroline here in the studio about the work that she does. And then Caroline and Lisa and I will all listen to some interviews that I did at the American Geophysical Union Conference last December in Washington, D.C. Um, this is where all of the scientists in the um, American Geophysical Union, people who study the Earth and other planets, get together and share their latest results. Um, I talked to a bunch of different scientists, people who study the moon, people who um, organize programs to get undergrads onto ships doing ocean research, um, people who are trying to create a miniature magnetic dipole like the one on the Earth, and a lot of other cool research. So um, get excited for a very special episode today all about the American Geophysical Union. Um, Caroline is originally from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Um, she got her BS in geology in 2016 from Lafayette College. Did I say that right? Okay. Um, <laughs> and she's about to finish her master's in science from UMass. Yay. Defending next week. Yeah. Woo. Um, and she studies historical coastal flooding using the sediment that builds up over time in coastal environments. Very cool stuff. Um, we're going to talk about that a little bit more. Um, also joining as my co-host today is comedian Lisa Wentworth. She's a local stand-up comic and an HIV-AIDS educator. Thank you for joining us, Lisa. Thank you. Um, yeah, so I guess let's, uh, let's jump into talking about your research a little bit, Caroline. Okay. So uh, for the past two years, I've been studying coastal flooding. And so my first project was in Japan, kind of looking at the differences between tsunamis and typhoons and how those have happened in the past. And so when we look at the sediment along coast, it can tell us a lot about these big events that push sand from the ocean and from beaches kind of onto marshes or into lakes near the coast. And so when we look at these sandy layers, they can tell us how often these storms happened in the past, storms and tsunamis, and then also how big they were. Um, so like their intensity, their frequency, um, and that really helps us go back further in time than historical records do. And so now I'm working in um, the New York Hudson River okay. and looking at tidal wetlands and how they've been building up over time and seeing um, how they may or may not keep up with sea level rise. So my, my research has been really interesting, but tidal wetlands are really important ecosystems for protecting coasts from coastal flooding. So we have these kind of grassy marshes that grow along a lot of the coasts and so they protect us and kind of reduce a lot of the energy that comes when hurricanes and storms come towards the coast and so yeah a bunch of really different projects really interesting projects um, I've gotten to help with a project in Puerto Rico trying to look at tsunamis and hurricanes okay. there throughout the past and so I just it's been a very cool experience being at UMass and part of my lab group it's really fun nice 
So you brought up a lot of different terms. Like, uh, I know, I so tsuna- first you were talking about Japan and you were talking about tsunamis and typhoons. Do you want to explain like what's the difference between those? Because oh yeah, yeah, I think like I hear those and I'm like water, but yeah. 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 Um, <laughs> so typhoons and hurricanes and tropical cyclones are all the same thing. We just have different names for them, kind of all over the all over the globe. Okay. Um, typhoons are like a Western Pacific word, um, so I tend to switch to that because that's where I looked at them in Japan. Mm, yeah. But hurricanes are kind of the normal. New England East Coast word, okay. um, or East Coast of the East Coast of of the United States, but West Coast of the Atlantic. Okay, Western Atlantic. But anyway, um, so generally those are just storms. So they are these like low pressure systems where um, what happens is you get these big winds and um, things that ha- that form around really warm ocean water. And so they always form in the tropical waters kind of Mm -hmm. near the equator. And um, they travel northward and then they wreak a lot of havoc because you get winds, you get a lot of waves from the wind. um, And then you also get this this bubble of water in the middle that we call surge. Mm. And so it's because there's really low air pressure over that part of the ocean. And so the water kind of swells up in the middle of the storms. And so like the eye of the storm. Yeah. Oh, okay. That's what I was like. Yeah. Yeah. I think I've heard of storm surge. I didn't know that it happened in the eye of the storm though. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, I think sometimes it's a little offset from the eye, but it's like, builds up because you have these winds around and they're like forming this bubble. I like I'm wow. using a lot of hand motions. <laughs> yeah, they're swirling and moving <laughs> up, happening. Yeah. Um, so that storm surge can be really damaging when hurricanes hit the coast, especially if they like hit at a high tide or something. That's what happened during Hurricane Sandy. It was high tide and then on top of high tide you got a couple extra meters of water from the surge that came at the same time. Okay. Um, whereas if you get a surge at low tide, it might just be the same as like a normal high tide. It wouldn't okay. do as much damage. Yeah. Um, but a tsunami is what happens when you get a vertical displacement of water. So like when we have earthquakes, the... Oh, that's what I was just saying. What yeah. makes it go up? Yeah. <laughs> You're like, why? Yeah. <laughs> Godzilla. <laughs> no. Yeah, so when, when earthquakes are the most common way that tsunamis happen. So like the crust kind of pops up um, as a non-structural person, this is like <laughs> my very general knowledge. I study earthquakes, so yeah. <laughs> um, the, the crust kind of pops up and displaces all of this ocean water, and so that then like dissipates or like travels outward from wherever that happened in all directions. Um, and so usually these like where the earthquakes happen are near a coast, and so that tsunami is really really strong if it's really close by, but will mm. kind of get lesser and lesser as it travels across an ocean. Um, they can also, tsunamis can also happen in like bays from a landslide occurring or from really small local earthquakes, but those are generally like smaller local events. Are there like seasons for that to happen or can they happen like anytime? Tsunamis can happen anytime, but, um, the storms, like the tropical cyclones usually happen in seasons. How far back do you go in the record? Like, yeah. Um, so in the Japan studies, it's going back two and a half or to like 2,500 years. Okay. Um, and then, but in New York, we were hoping that some of the wetlands that we're looking at were um, older, like a couple thousand years old, but they turns out that most of them are like 100 or 200 years old. Uh, so they're really, really young and okay. new, um, which is really exciting because they're they're doing really well in terms of keeping up with sea level rise. Oh, okay. Is, so how did great. you um, find out that they were younger than like what you, I mean, you were hoping to get a longer record, I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. 
But um, yeah, so what we were kind of looking at is how sediment is building up in all of these um, tidal wetlands up the Hudson River. And so we were expecting that they'd just be keeping pace with sea level rise or not keeping pace with sea level rise. But in in the Hudson River, that's only like a couple of millimeters a year. It's like very small. And so then we went to these these like different wetlands and we take essentially a big metal stick and we just shove it down into the mud. Okay. <laughs> um, and it was only like <laughs> there's only like a meter, two meters of mud in most of these spots. Um, and then you hit sand. And okay. sand is really hard to like get through, so you can feel it pretty well when you're like sticking that down. Um, yeah, and so it, like just that there's only a little bit of mud told us that maybe something weird was going on. And now we've like looked at the age, the ages on the sediment. Um, so now it's just like the last 150 years we built like a railroad up the Hudson River and we have dredged the Hudson River a lot, kind of stirring up the sediment and done like we've modified that the shores, like the sides of the Hudson River a lot. Okay. Um, and it looks like in these like happy little low energy spots, like behind railroads and behind um, like piles of sediment that we put there, they're just, we just made marshes happen in like 150 years. So okay. well, that's <laughs> very cool. Good. Yeah. Right? Is that good? Marshes are good for, <laughs> yeah. like you were saying, protecting kind of buffering mm-hmm. storms, buffering storms for habitat. I was for, just saying, there must be a lot of things living in there. Yeah. As like a carbon sink, they function in a lot of, they have, what is a carbon sink? Oh yeah. That's, um, <laughs> that's a really interesting word. Um, so like these, the plants that tend to grow in wetlands absorb a lot of carbon from the atmosphere and like use carbon to produce, this is getting into biology, which I don't know very much about. (laughs) Um, They produce that pulls carbon dioxide out of the air to make the the actual body of the plant. And then that, Holds the carbon. I think so, yeah. yeah. And like holds wow. it down into the sediment. We'll and so that it. relates to climate change also, mm-hmm. sort of, because Could be. it's taking climate or taking carbon dioxide out of the air. Yeah. So wetlands are like an ecosystem we're really worried about, but it seems like at least in the Hudson, there's tons of sediment and they're going to do fine. Okay. So that was, was been a really fun and like happy project to be part of versus nice. the like really negative, like everybody's going to die because climate's changing. So. I like being part of that. Um, So did you have to change? So you thought you were going to find a longer record, though. So did you have to change, like, the goals of what you were studying there because of that? Not exactly, but I think the focus has shifted from we just wanted to know how the wetlands were doing to, like, wow, we created these wetlands, Uh, like, 150 years ago, and we had no idea. So that means that we should look at these projects because – we made them kind of yeah. like they're unintentionally totally unintentionally but now we like there are a lot of places where we want to know how to make marshes healthy and like help them survive oh, okay um and yet we have like these really good success stories that we didn't really know about um oh. so if we can figure out why those were successful we could use that to a happy byproduct yeah we can like use those success stories to figure out how to help other projects and other coastlines cool yeah you said you figured out that the sediments in the Hudson were really young. Like, what do you, what method do you use to figure out how old they are? Um, so we've used three different things. Um, one is just historical maps and charts um, have been really useful in the Hudson River because we've used that for navigation and transportation for a really long time. Um, so we have pretty good charts back to, like, the 1860s, 1870s. So that's been really useful because we can kind of see when the railroad went in or when, like, a 
peer out to a lighthouse was built, like things like that mm. we can kind of see. And then we also, in the sediment, we, we scan it for um, different elements. And so we, at one, at one point in every core, you can see a really big increase in lead and zinc and other heavy metals. And so that we mark as kind of this global 1850 um, line because that was when like the Industrial Revolution started and there was just a lot of pollution happening everywhere. Um, so it's like a really distinctive marker in the sediment. Oh, wow. So, um, yeah, the Industrial Revolution line. Is very visible, yeah. Which is gross but really helpful. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then the other thing that we use is uh, an element called cesium and a cesium isotope. It's 137 cesium. And so what we did in the 50s and 60s was we set off a bunch of um, nuclear bombs in the <laughs> atmosphere. <laughs> and so this element called cesium has been raining out of the atmosphere since then. And so whenever it starts in the sediment is 1954. Uh. And then it comes to a peak kind of in that sediment in 1963. And so it's, it de has been decreasing since then, but those are really useful for sediment dating as well. <laughs> um, because these are way too young for radiocarbon dating, which is usually like much, much older stuff. Okay. Um, and I don't know how to do radiocarbon dating. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's interesting that there's those two markers that are like based on human behavior, but not like that wasn't their intention to help you figure out nope. how old your sediment was. <laughs> but, really, really useful. Both useful. a little bit disturbing that like both right. of them are still still around but yeah um, very useful it's amazing what happens all the different things we do to this planet that you can see the effects yeah and i always find it so weird that people say there are no effects to some of the stuff we're doing it's like <laughs> yeah there are like, yeah they're very obvious everywhere yeah. for a long time mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah so you're a voice for science advocate mm -hmm. so do you want to talk about what that is and how you ended up doing that um i'm one of those people who i like i try to read most of my emails and so i had gotten this email from someone about agu and so that's the american geophysical union um you already spoke to that they're like the largest society of earth and space scientists globally i think there's like 60,000 members wow. it's a really a really big big organization and so I was um, already kind of keeping an eye out for their sharing science division and the things that they do because during grad school I've gotten more and more involved with like outreach and education and just general science communication, um, which we like to abbreviate SCICOM um, <laughs> for yeah. some reason, that's new. And um, something that I'm interested in but very intimidated by is science policy mm. and doing, like, communication and outreach for policy and, like, um, informing policy. And so those – that is something that I want to be more involved in um, but is totally terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> so this seemed like a really good program because they have these two, like, divisions for the Voice for Science advocates where – one is this general communications and media track, okay. and the other one is a policy track. So they take like 30 scientists. This is only their second year for the Voice for Science Advocates. Um, so it was, I think, 34, 35 scientists this year, and they split us into two groups. Well, we chose which group we would be part of. Um, and so I wanted to be part of the policy track so I could get exposed to more of this policy science communication and all of this kind of jargon and world that is a little bit intimidating to be getting into by yourself. And yeah. so 
they we they flew us into DC for this two day intensive um, workshop on kind of general science communication training the first day and then the policy people went and did congressional visits on Capitol Hill the second day. Oh cool. So I met with representatives from Massachusetts and Pennsylvania and New Jersey with another another one of the scientists. And what do you talk to them about when you're there? Um, so they AGU had very specific things they wanted us to talk to those representatives about. And then we also talked to them a little bit about our research and what we do as as earth scientists, um, very generally. And uh, but mostly we were talking about science funding because the budget is is huge and um, <laughs> so there's um, <laughs> two different types of funding. Yeah. And one is for essentially military resources okay. and all of that and it's huge and then one is for kind of everything else uh-huh. um, and it's a much smaller portion of the money that sounds right um, yeah <laughs> which is fine but we are essentially fighting for the the white house had proposed these intense budget cuts for budget cuts for science funding um and we wanted to fight against that and most for the most part uh whatever budget the white house i think sends out really doesn't have much like clout behind it okay um so it's really what the house of representatives and senate what congress decides mm-hmm. to do okay. so talking to them was really valuable and most of them were very receptive and really happy to talk to us about these like budgetary appropriations for like nsf and noaa and um i'm gonna throw a lot of acronyms <laughs> out there i don't know what one of those things <laughs> um, should i just say them or? it's up to you um, just different organizations yeah for a bunch of science that. organizations and yeah. so that was really really cool to be part of and now as a voice for science advocate over the next year we're responsible for doing more science communication and policy like outreach activities every month cool um yeah, and so it's a great opportunity. It's still really new and exciting, um, and I'm excited to see kind of what outreach activities I'll end up getting into. Nice. Yeah. So I did these interviews. I said this is going to be a special episode, and I think I didn't explain why it was a special episode. So um, at the last meeting of the American Geophysical Union, which was in Washington, D.C. in 2018 in December, um, I did, like, short interviews with people who I just ran into at the conference. (laughs) I just, like, found people and talked to them about why they were there, their research, and things like that. And um, that's a really huge conference. I think you said there's about 60,000 members of AGU. Yeah. I think the conference is, like, twenty to 25,000 people. So a lot of people in one place. So there's, like, Mm. a wide range of topics covered. Um, I think, you know, I did five interviews, and that comes nowhere near being able to, like, sample the types of things that people are talking about there. There's a lot of climate science. There's a lot of tectonics. There's a lot of planetary science. There's um, a lot of hydrology and studying water and climate and uh, what else did I? Oceanography. Mm-hmm. Like just yeah. Did yeah, I forget probably. anything big? Uh, I'm sure I did. I, yeah, there's so many specialties. <laughs> yeah. The air. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the air. Did I talk about the air? Uh, um, but so yeah, I thought maybe we could um, listen to some interviews and then talk about them, talk about, just reflect on them, and um, also maybe play our own versions of um, GTA, I guess that acronym. (laughs) Okay, so um, maybe I'll pull up the first interview that we can listen to. This is from, um, well, I'll let him introduce himself, but so I talked to somebody who studies the moon. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. Hi, 
I'm Patrick O'Brien. I'm a second year graduate student at the University of Arizona. Cool. And so, could you tell me about the research that you do? Sure. So, uh, the, the moon uh, is an airless body and the surfaces of airless bodies which are exposed to the harsh environment of space are constantly being bombarded by uh, energetic particles from the sun and cosmic rays and impacts and these uh, energetic processes uh, enact significant physical and chemical changes to the surface. So I'm interested in studying how these, these energetic processes weather the lunar surface and how we can infer how fast this process happens. Because not only is this space weathering the dominant mechanism modifying the lunar surface, but it's also all the things that we're protected from here on Earth. And so uh, if we're interested in sending humans back to the moon, uh, it's important to understand how these harmful effects would affect uh, and weather their surfaces and, and, and understanding that we can learn and develop ways to shield against it. Nice. So um, what is the mechanism of this weathering? Like how does it happen? So it happens uh, as, as the lunar surface is struck by these high energy particles. Uh, in the lunar soil, uh, these tiny, tiny iron particles are formed. So they're only a few tens of nanometers across. And they grow and, and increase in the lunar soil. And uh, these have been shown to be the cause of all of the chemical effects of space weathering that we see when we look at the moon. And so with, with really advanced microscopes, we can measure these iron particles and look at how much iron is in the lunar soil. And this correlates directly with how much weathering has, has occurred. So the more iron we see, the more weathering that grain has experienced. Okay. So what are some of the challenges to like understanding the rate of weathering? Well, so uh, thanks to the Apollo missions, we can, we can directly measure how much weathering has occurred in the lunar soil. But uh, we don't know how long each of those grains spent on the surface exposed to space where it could be weathered. So the challenge in understanding the rate of space weathering is, is linking how much weathering has occurred uh, with a prediction of how long those grains actually spent on the lunar surface. And to answer that question, we've developed a model which simulates the physical evolution of the lunar surface. So we take a, a synthetic moon and we evolve it as it, it, as it uh, undergoes uh, changes from impact cratering and uh, material moving downhill from things like micrometeorite gardening and mass wasting, uh, which has a cumulative effect of being like diffusion. So it, it smooths topographic features and moves material downhill. And with that model, we can seed it with these tracer particles, which represent our synthetic lunar soil grains, and we can track their 3D position as they get bounced around from craters and slide downhill from the diffusion. And then we look at how long they spent on the surface. And so then, linking uh, uh, our results from measuring how much weathering has occurred with our prediction of how long those particles spend on the surface, we can start to understand the rate that space weathering occurs at. Well, um, I already asked you this when we were chatting before, but maybe if you can explain again micrometeorite gardening, because that's a really cool term. Yeah. So. Uh, <laughs> Uh, the, the craters that we're probably most familiar with are these huge, massive uh, basins in the ground. And those are, are uh, a big component of, of cratering on the moon, but uh, there are also smaller craters. And the smaller you go, the more craters there are and the more things that are hitting the moon. So at really small scales, like sand-sized particles, uh, there are many, many of these particles hitting the moon. And they're small, but they're hitting at, at, tens, and, at tens of miles per second. And so the net effect of all these, these grains hitting, hitting the moon is, 
is what is termed as micrometeorite gardening. So all these small impacts churn up material and eject little clouds of, of soil, and they tend to distribute material downhill, which contributes to this diffusive effect. But they also churn up and till uh, the upper layers of the moon, and so that's why we call it micrometeorite gardening. Cool. Hi. So, um, have you have you solved the problem yet, or how? Like, what do you? What's the answer here? Like? Well, uh, I don't know if we've solved it. Uh, <laughs> space weathering is is really complicated. There's okay. lots of processes going on, but uh, our initial results suggest that the amount of weathering increases exponentially with time. So, uh, if a if a soil grain is initially exposed on the moon, it will have it won't have any of this uh, these tiny iron particles. But as it remains there, uh, these particles will, will start to grow slowly, and more of them will uh, uh, start to form in, in the soil. And as it remains on the surface, these iron particles will start to grow uh, exponentially, and, and the amount of weathering will accelerate over time. And so this has important implications for uh, the physical processes which contribute to the weathering. And uh, uh, going forward, we're going to be looking at what the actual mechanisms are that contribute to this weathering process and why it, 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 it changes over time. Okay. Cool. So uh, how did you get into this field of study? Uh, well, I, I sort of applied to graduate school on a whim. Um, <laughs> I, uh, and I always thought that, that working on NASA missions uh, and working on planetary science and spa space exploration would be, would be really cool. Um, and uh, it all sort of worked out. And um, I found a, uh, an advisor in a project that I was interested in. and. Um, Nice. That's how it happened. <laughs> cool. Have you been to AGU before? No, this is my first time. First in time? AGU. What do you yeah. think so far? It's a, uh, it's a little overwhelming, but yeah. um, it's cool. There's a lot of really interesting uh, work being done in, in not just planetary science, but in, in, in the, the field as a whole. It's cool to see uh, everybody gathered in one place. Yeah. Cool. So uh, on my podcast, I normally end the show with a game called GTA. Guess that acronym. <laughs> um, and. Uh, so normally I have like a comedian co-host and I have the scientists try to stump them with acronyms from their fields. So I don't I was going to ask you if you have any acronyms you want to give me that I could try to guess what they might mean. Okay. Uh, there's a TEM and NPFE. Okay. TEM, I can see what it is. So I'm going to, yeah, it's transmission electron microscope or microscope. Microscopy? Or microscopy. Um, okay, yeah. so I, I, I'm not going to cheat and pretend I just guessed that on my own. But uh, what was the other one? NPFE. NPFE. Which is um, also in the uh, on the poster. Okay. And it's related to uh, the space weathering. NPFE. I'm going to go with like net particle uh, formation energy. So, yeah, this is a tricky one because the FE is actually the, uh, the chemical name for iron. Oh. So it's nanophase iron. Oh, nanophase iron. That's a really tricky one, too, because yeah. phase, even though it starts with a P, you don't, like, think of. Yeah, that's a really tricky one. Okay. You got you something. me. <laughs> cool. Thanks so much for doing the interview. Thank you. Yeah, so the moon and weathering. What did you guys think? 
that's crazy. <laughs> Very interesting. Yeah. I, there's just so many different things to study. So. Yeah. <laughs> Far away and near. Yeah, I don't think we got into it too much, but I think like part of the consideration there was like if we were to build settlements on the moon or if people were to like spend longer amounts of time on the moon and like how would their spacesuits hold up and things right. like that yeah or kind of or even to build like a little base or if a shuttle was going to be there for a couple days or weeks or months yeah yeah it's interesting because it contrasts so much with like our idea of weathering on earth because like that's from water and particles and stuff i guess this is like from particles too but a different kind yeah 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 Really interesting, too, with, like, the force that they're hitting the moon yeah. surface. I'm kind of just blown away by that and right. don't understand so exactly there's just a lot of stuff is. flying around out there? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Uh, you know, atmosphere. I mean, I think we have our atmosphere that, like, buffers those things. So, like, you know, the micrometeorite gardening thing. Like, I don't think we have micrometeorites on Earth because I think they would burn up. Or maybe mm-hmm. we do, but not at the same volume because they, they burn, burn up in the atmosphere. Down. Yeah, whereas the moon doesn't have that protecting it. Super cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You're listening to Lab Talk with Laura on 91.1 FM WMUA Amherst today. I'm joined in the studio by Caroline Ledlow from the Geoscience Department and comedian Lisa Wentworth. We're listening to some interviews that I did at the 2018 American Geophysical Union Conference in Washington, D.C., uh, you can check out Lab Talk with Laura on Facebook, iTunes, SoundCloud, Twitter, anywhere you listen to podcasts. Give it a give it a like, give it a subscribe. Okay, back to our episode. <laughs> so our next interview um, is actually going to be kind of more about on the policy side and the funding side. Um, this is somebody who works for NOAA and UCAR, so some acronyms that we can <laughs> hear about. Uh, I'm Sean Bath. I work with, uh, I'm employed by UCAR working with NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and UCAR is the <laughs> University Corporation for Atmospheric Research. Because it's a corporation or consortium, either one. Oh, okay. Some C word. <laughs> yeah, some C yeah. word. Some okay. acronym. <laughs> Those dang acronyms. Um, cool. So what do you do at UCAR? I, um, I work with uh, the NOAA Climate Program Office that funds competitive research. Uh, in this case, uh, I work with a specific program called RESA, which is another acronym, <laughs> Regional Integrated Sciences and Assessments. It's a, it's a program that funds teams of interdisciplinary scientists that work very closely with their regional stakeholders to figure out how to link the science and, and co-produce projects with, with stakeholders in the region so that they can okay. sort of make uh, better scientific products and, and tailor them to you know whatever people need. Okay. Uh, so we have 11 teams around the nation. Uh, it's intended to be a national program, but it's not quite doesn't quite fill in every every place. Okay. Uh, and, and you know, in terms of what I do, like my title is called program specialist, and, and I just sort of like help with the day to day management of the program, which, okay. <laughs> which, look, what does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> you know, that itself covers a lot. And, yeah. you know, there's kind of like the more boring paperwork side of it where we do like grants, parts of grants management. Um, but then there's the more fun side where we get to interact with the program managers and the, uh, the, the lead uh, investigators for each team. We get to, you know, you know read reports from, from what they're doing, with the, the research that they're doing. And uh, we try to communicate that out both internally to the agency uh, and to, you know, like basically to Congress and the administration. Okay. um, But also outward to the broader public so so that they know what we're doing. So you're the go-between between between, like the government funding and the actual scientists? Yeah, essentially. Well, well, I'm, I mean, the office is is the the government. 
office. So okay. I, I'm, I'm just sort of like nonprofit um, expertise to help out with, with the management of, of that government process. Okay. Um, but I work alongside vets, essentially. Okay. And so um, you said interdisciplinary science teams. So could you like right. expand on what that means? Like what kind of scientists and what kind of teams are they putting together? Right. So um, in terms of numbers, we're talking about maybe, well, each one's a little bit different, but, you know, they usually have like a core of maybe like uh, maybe a handful, five, six, sometimes even ten uh, kind of core uh, um, investigators and they may have a network stretching across their, their universities or institutes that, that go far beyond that. Uh, but the, the key detail is that they always have, like, some of them are, are physical science experts um, into climate science, modeling, downscaling, uh, atmospheric science, all that sort of stuff. And then they have social science expertise as well. Um, so that they can, or maybe even policy um, specialists, that they can, you know, sort of understand how to how to initiate some of the social science on this, how to get on the ground with workshops, and how to to lead uh, local governments and, and state governments and organizations to you know a, a jointly found answer amongst them all. <laughs> okay, so you use this word stakeholders, which I think I learned recently. So, you know, Very from broad. a scientist perspective, what is a stakeholder? What does that mean? Right. Sometimes that varies by region and what their own expertise is. I mean, just because, you know, when we're putting up a new competition and a new region for one of these teams, um, we actually, it's, it's built from the ground up. The, their goals are built from the ground up because we want them to come to us with a proposal on, you know, what priorities in the region are important and mm. what makes sense given existing capacities and what are the gaps what can they provide for people in the region that isn't already provided so the specific list of stakeholders can vary but some of the team you know a lot of the teams that they work with the very traditional ones that, that engage with climate um, impacts like uh, you know agricultural users uh, indigenous tribes water utilities but that's kind of like the classic case okay but then um, this is becoming such a big issue lately where it's now, you know, local governments and, and state agencies across the board, uh, emergency management, um, you know, sometimes private businesses, uh, you know, a, quite, quite, a, quite a few types of stakeholders that are out there. But I think they focus a little bit, as compared to some organizations that are out there, I think they focus a little bit less on the natural resource management side and a little more on the, you know, like the planning and the, the, the social and, and the governance side okay. of the equation. Yeah. Yeah, I'm curious. Um, so you're deciding who gets funded? Yeah. That, that's a, how right. do you what do you how do you decide that? So we have a, a competitive um, panel. Uh, well, we have a competitive we have a panel that decides um, or scores. You know, uh, the the proposals that come in. So okay. it's a Competitive process. Yeah. Uh, the panel we we select the panel, um, and then we we being the broad like NOAA the NOAA Climate Program Office okay. we decide who is on the panel and. Make sure that it covers, you know, scientific experts in, in various uh, disciplines, but also people from the region, so that they have existing knowledge on what's covered in the region and what gaps are in the region. Okay. And they, you know, we, we bring them together so that they can discuss the proposals all at once, and they decide, you know, what the scores are for various criteria. And it's weighted heavily towards that expert score, um, but we also have a less or lower weighting for uh, relevance to NOAA because okay. there are NOAA grants but yeah. but we, we heavily bias towards the you know 
the expert panel because they're sort of like coming at it from a is this a scientifically interesting question? Is this is this a, a need for the region? Yeah. Um, and then you know basically score them all out. And we'll fund if they if they get above a certain score and they have a score above everyone else, we'll fund that that okay. one in particular. Always pending availability of funds. Right, right. That's the big one, yeah. Right. So, are there any projects that you've been involved with that are particularly cool to you? Uh, lately, we've been trying to emphasize projects that have economic impacts. Okay. Um, so, for example, we have. Um, uh, I guess the, the really the best one we have out there is is you know some of this work along the the Gulf Coast with our Southern Central team uh, that has you know, one of them is like the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. They worked with the National Renewable Energy Lab and, and the Strategic Petroleum Reserve to make a climate plan so that they have long term resilience because you know it's a it's a strategic uh, petroleum <laughs> it's a strategic uh, resource uh, to stabilize like. The, the oil market, yeah, and um, they don't—they didn't have a long-term climate plan. Oh, okay. <laughs> so yeah. the team, you know, provided some of the input into that, and I guess uh, one of the reasons that we we like to highlight that one not only is because it's like larger economic importance, but also because uh, they got some numbers back from the people on the ground that said, "Hey, we were, you know, reconstructing some of these buildings that got flooded out, and you know, we can price the the cost of the building." Now versus what it would have been, what it would have been if it, if it got flooded in the future, because we're because they were elevating it based on the climate plan, yeah. based on the potential for storm, storm surge at higher uh, higher uh, elevations. Yeah. So uh, basically, it was like a one to seven uh, savings, okay. um, or one, one to seven return on investment based yeah. on like you know they're saving that much money. Uh, just in that little building. So that's the kind of things that we're looking for in terms of assessing like what the value. High it's really impact, hard to get yeah. the value of the of the science. So we, we look for whatever like benefits the the stakeholders have made economically yeah. and try to highlight those. Yeah. <laughs> So that's that's been kind interesting of a to hear about. Clear that. Yeah, 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 and and we know that it's it's way broader than that. That, that you know, I mean, goodness, the the value of science is is quite deep actually, and it's complicated. Right. Um, but you know, we've been trying to get some of those headlines uh, lately, and I think I, I think overall that's been a positive push, especially as long as we keep in mind that that's not it's not all just about like numbers, monetary numbers. Yeah. It's, it's also about like quality of life. It's about you know making sure that we're reaching everybody yeah well so um, so at the end of each interview on my show I usually have the scientists provide an acronym to stump the comedian co-host and obviously I don't have a comedian co-host here but I don't know if you want to give me an acronym to try to stump me you already you already covered a lot of your acronyms. I did I did I had a lot oh I have one okay uh, it's a it's a dead one now I think they had even changed it when the committee was still in there but it was a uh, snack effect Snack effect? Yeah. Is that an acronym? That is an acronym. So S N A. Do you know the letters in it? S N A C A F A C maybe. This has got to be the hardest acronym I've ever heard. Snack effect. Um, I'm not even sure if I know all of those letters. I can't even. I'm like lost on the first one. Um, like let's see S. Oh yeah, it's S. Yeah, it's S N C A or something like that. Yeah. S so it's the S is sustained. Sustained that, National Committee against ooh, fear and climate research. <laughs> I don't know. I was <laughs> no, close for a bit. <laughs> okay. It's, it's something like the um, 
the Sustained National Climate Assessment Federal Advisory Committee. Oh, okay. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, so there's like, you know the National Climate Assessment, right? Okay, yeah. There's an effort to, uh, to do something called Sustained National Climate Assessment where they sort of like, uh, instead of big updates, they do a more regular release oh, of information, okay, yeah. keep the, the network of experts together. Yeah. Um, and they had a, a, a formal federal advisory committee uh, to sort of advise how how to do that, and yeah. at the time it was some acronym like that that basically oh, okay. came out to the to snack effect. <laughs> and that that's what took them down, actually. Yeah, right? probably the, so. The lack of a, a concise acronym. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> can really do the project. Um, cool. Well, thanks so much for talking to me. It was nice Thank to you. meet you. Uh, yeah. Cool. So he's on more of the funding side, which is interesting to hear about and really important. Yeah. And, you know, that came up in our interview. Like, he, you know, he was like, so we rank them and then the high, you know, it's very competitive and the highest ones that have the most important stuff will get funded pending availability of yeah. funds, which yeah. like gets into what you were saying, like with the budget coming yeah. out. You never know. Yeah. yeah. Trying to secure funding for anything, no matter what it is, is definitely very competitive and you have to have you know, the most uh, exciting and promising project if you want the funds now, especially because they've cut so many different things. Obviously, mm -hmm. science is very important, but, like, I've worked in the health field and, and uh, monies for, like, HIV and AIDS education, lobbying and doing that kind of stuff. It's, like, not easy, and you yeah. want to get your point across, and you really want to get the money, but you have to have a good spiel, and you mm -hmm. have to have it, like, show mm -hmm. up worth it, and... It's a lot of work, grant writing, and just all the different areas. It's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. Cool. Okay, so we have another interview to listen to. This one's about um, a lab in Maryland where they're trying to create a magnetic dipole. So, like, the Earth has a magnetic dipole, and they're trying to recreate that in a lab. So we'll hear about that. Cool. Hello, thank you for the invitation here. Well, I'm, I'm Ruben Rojas. I'm a PhD student at the University of Maryland College Park. And I'm in my fourth uh, year as a PhD student. Or, you know, I come from Venezuela. Um, and, well, we are in a, a lab called the Geodynamo Lab. And the idea, what we're doing is we're trying to understand how the Earth magnetic field is created, is generated. So there are certain, you know, theories going around. Uh, and the main uh, thing that we think that causes the Earth's magnetic field is the, is the outer core of the Earth, which is made of iron, uh, liquid iron with nickel, an alloy between nickel and, and iron. And the idea is that those flows that happen there that no one actually understands quietly because it's really uh, uh, complicated to, to get information out of there because mm -hmm. it's like buried deep. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Some hard kilometers to get to. Hard yeah. to, get to yeah. um, so all, all those flows um, create and sustain a magnetic field through a process that we call dynamo, dynamo mechanism. So in our lab, we're trying to do the hard way. <laughs> I don't know if that's how you call it, but we're trying to do these uh, like experimental studies of this, which are very complicated because, uh, well, we need, we need very turbulent flows. We need, we're, we're, try, we're trying to mimic in these highly complex flows. And like maybe the experimental approach is one of the most difficult uh, okay. nowadays. Yeah, because right now you have like numerical methods, and that you know, that works to central to um, until certain limits. It works pretty well. Okay. Um, 
but uh, again, the experimental part is like is very complicated. So yeah. Okay. So yeah. Uh, so the other approach is to just use computers and equations yeah. that describe yeah, exactly. those flows and exactly. and somehow can figure out how they might arise. Yeah, to yeah. So a magnetic field. The, the mechanism is, is well understood and, and theoretically mm -hmm. is well developed, but again, uh, the equations that uh, that follow these flows mm -hmm. uh, are not highly nonlinear equations. So the numerical worked until certain regime, okay. but like to if we want to mimic the actual numbers, like we call Reynolds number, which is like the turbulent way of measure the how, how turbulent the flow is. Okay. If you want to get to those levels, uh, it's very difficult to do in, in, in numerical. Okay. So in our experiment, uh, just going to throw some numbers. I don't know. Uh, uh, in in our experiment, we reached to something called like Reynolds number ten to the eight. Okay. Ten to the eight, ten to the ninth, and simulations can reach only like ten to the five. Okay. Like that. So for so, people who aren't scientists, when yeah, you say yeah, ten yeah. to the eighth, ten to yeah, the ninth, yeah, yeah. so that's a ten with eight zeros after. Exactly. Right? Exactly. Or ten with nine so zeros. So it's, it's just a number, but okay. to, but, but the, the important is that the, the difference between ten to the six and ten to the eight, it's it's a lot, no? It's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's hard to, 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 to achieve. And the higher the number, the more turbulence The more turbulence, is the, yeah. The, the, more, the more difficult it is to get information out of it, the more difficult it is to predict okay. and to, yeah, to, get, yeah, to get data out of it. So you're taking a different approach, which we're, is experimental. We're taking a different, yeah. So real materials, yeah, real yeah. world. We're not the only ones doing this thing, okay. but at this scale, yes, we, we are at, at the University of Maryland. So we, we think we are the biggest uh, spherical geometry that is trying to we're trying to mimic like directly how the outer core looks so you so have it's a mini sphere. earth in your it's lab it's like literally a mini earth okay well it's not the mini it's, uh, <laughs> it's pretty it has, big it's pretty big yeah <laughs> it has a uh, uh, three meters of diameter, okay. like the outer sphere, so that will, mm -hmm. that will mimic the outer core. Mm -hmm. And then that thing has inside an inner, inner solid sphere of one meter, well, not solid, hollow, but, you know, uh, okay. of one meter diameter. And the idea is that we, we counter-rotate these two spheres. So that's something uh, called spherical quet flows, for the people who want to uh, do more uh, search about it. Uh -huh. And so when you counter-rotate these two spheres, the idea is that we want to uh, create flows like the ones that we have in the Earth, uh, the turbulent flows like the one uh, we have in the Earth. So the bigger the bigger the experiment, the more closer we are to uh, to the turbulence that we actually have in the Earth. Okay. So it's like it's a matter of size in this case. Uh, yeah. That. So that's one of the important factors for getting how turbulent the flow is, like the, the dimension uh, of the, your experiment. Okay, so you have these giant spheres yeah. and you rotate them and we rotate with them very motor? fast with two motors, two actually. Motors. Yeah, so okay. the outer and the inner sphere, we rotate them. So and the idea is that we rotate them and then some flows start appearing inside. That we, we, so we, you have water inside there? No, no, no. That's a very important point, <laughs> yes. So as I told you, the, the outer core of the Earth is made of iron. Okay. Liquid iron. But we... Iron is very uh, difficult to melt. Okay. No, so there are very high temperatures in the core. Uh. But uh, right here on the surface, we use uh, uh, sodium, okay. which it melts at around 100 C. Okay. So when you melt it, you have a conductive flow, and it has the same properties, similar properties to the one of the uh, the iron and the nickel liquid ni uh, iron had. Uh, so yeah, we, we use that and we rotate this thing. That, so we have a conductive fluid now, and rotating turbulent rotated and then we apply an external magnetic field okay external like the earth like a dipole uh, which is like a north pole and a south pole we apply that um, and we let it go and the idea is that when you turn off this this external magnetic field uh, the the liquid is still capable of sustaining this 
this field. So you have your mini Earth right there, like the Earth is doing. So that's what originally happened on the Earth. It took some external magnetic field, it like twisted around, maybe generated by itself, and then it, it was able to f sustain this magnetic field out of the, the just the turbulent in the in the outer core. So we're basically trying to mimic that right away. Um, we are, yeah. I, I don't want to say the only ones we are doing it. <laughs> we are the ones who are doing it at this bigger scale. Okay. So hopefully it will work. So you have like an enormous room. It is, yeah. It's like a warehouse. Okay. And we have this thing, and uh, and how do you make the magnetic field that you're um, imposing on it? Yeah, yeah. So we have two electromagnets, and okay. they're they're on the uh, little um, uh, near to the equator. So the applied field will be something like a dipole. So we have a north pole, okay. and we'll come down and back to the to the south pole, like okay. the like just the like Earth. On the Earth. So, just like the Earth. Yeah. Wow. So have you been able to sustain a magnetic field okay. from the dipole? Uh, so 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 far we have had amplification, which is really important. Okay. Amplification of ten to twenty percent in the direction that we want. Okay, of that field that you're already creating. of that field. So okay. we have so we have. It gets stronger. Yeah, it gets stronger, which is is good by itself. Yeah. Yeah. It's really good. It's a very good result but we still what we're looking for is the bigger much bigger amplification maybe maybe two times and then when you turn it off the, the magnetic field stays there you know? mm -hmm. so we, we have to do some modifications to the, to the, our experiment that that's what I'm working right now yeah and we hope that those modifications are actually gonna get us closer to this to this state because right now yes we have rotate as fast as we can as <laughs> which is very fast how still. fast is it <laughs> so the, the outer sphere the outer sphere motor is a 350 horsepower motor, okay. uh, like an industrial motor, and and allow us to rotate at four hertz. That's four revolutions per second. And you're to, we're talking about a three meter diameter uh, um, sphere rotating at four revolutions per second. It's pretty dangerous. It's very fast. <laughs> so, okay, so you yeah. don't go like touch it and try no, to stop no, it. No, no, no. <laughs> like when you have a globe spinning in your house, you don't like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you don't, don't put your hand. Uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> are you in the room when the experiments are happening, or do you have to be outside the room? Is we, it dangerous? There is to be like in a there? safety zone. Okay. And we, we operate the whole experiment in like a cabin, and it has like bulletproof uh, um, windows just in case. In case somebody wants to shoot your can. experiment. No. Yeah, because <laughs> that'll be bad. <laughs> so <laughs> we have like stuff rotating, like we have. Uh, some batteries, for instance, and there are because the, the whole sphere has to be isolated. All the measurements technique, all the measurement instrument are powered by batteries. Like there are car batteries, and they're on top, and they're rotating oh, wow. for a second. Yeah, so they gotta be well that well that <laughs> very good. Any particular car batteries? Like, no, it's just okay. any. any. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't remember the, the, okay. the, the, the car brand. But <laughs> any, yeah, any battery. Um, so yeah, if one of these things just flies off, it it could easily kill. Does somebody. that happen sometimes? I think I think it happened. I, I wasn't there when it happened. Okay. Uh, but no, no one no one died. Okay. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm curious. Like, yeah. what has gone wrong during these because it sounds like a pretty dangerous experiment. Yeah, but actually. but we have had some some especially also I told you that we use sodium. Mm -hmm. And sodium is pretty dangerous because it, it ignites, ignites uh, very easily with water. It basically explodes. You know? Okay. The, and you have this giant amount. Yeah, and we have 12 tons of that. So okay. one of the safety measurements is that the, there are no sprinkles in the room. Ah. So yeah. So in case of fire, we got to pull it out any, any other way. We cannot use water. The uh, the fire fighters know that if something happened in this room, they cannot use water. 
Uh, that's one of the first things. Uh, right. Yeah. So that that's very very important. So we have had some uh, fires before, uh -huh. but this is not the first time we have uh, done experiments like this. The lab has done other smaller scale experiments. Okay. Yeah. They started for with a, a 30 centimeter experiment. They were they, they kept increasing the sizes mm -hmm. until they reached to this three meter. Which uh, they choose three meter because that's the size of the door of the warehouse. So that's, <laughs> okay, so <laughs> if you want to get any bigger, you have to build a new building. Yeah, basically. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay. And they say, no, we're not going to demolish the doors. So you just okay. make us fear winter. This yeah. is kind of your kind of true. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that, that's the idea. Um, so we had some fire before, and we will learn it from that. And now we have a lot of safety measurements uh, every time we run. And okay. That's always an important part yeah. of experimenting this. Okay, so if this works, yeah, if you hopefully. get the dynamo to work, what yes. will you learn from the experiment? That, yeah, that's very good. Like, well, so far, this, this self-sustainable magnetic field hasn't been uh, obtained before. No? Okay. So it's just, get, it's just getting that dynamo and understanding the dynamics of it. Maybe one of the uh, important things is that Right now, the, the you know the Earth magnetic field has some reversals, right? Uh, so it okay. flips, you know. Yeah. The, the, the whole reversal process is not well understood yet. So if we could like mimic, I have our, this mini Earth here. One of the main you know uh, outreach uh, consequences of this is that we we could we're getting closer to understand how this reversal process works. So okay. that that would be very yeah, yeah. very important. Cool. What kind of measurements do you take when oh. you're doing these experiments? So obviously you're measuring the magnetic yeah. field. Do yeah, you yeah, measure yeah. anything else? So interesting that um, maybe in other flows uh, uh, experiments, uh, people normally measure velocity, velocity like some velocimetry technique, like particle tracking. You know, they they just right. put some particles in the see flow how fast that and see moving, how right? it moves. Okay. Yeah. But uh, here we are totally blind regarding the the flow because first it's a, a solid. Uh, a stainless steel sphere, yeah. so there's no imaging that we can do there. Okay. Then the sodium is opaque, there's no tracer or techniques related that, that we can use. And, and because we, we melted, we work in a temperature of 100 C, so that limited the, the measurements instruments that we can, that we can use. Uh, so we're completely blind regarding velocity, but we can measure magnetic field, as you said. So we have a, a 31 probes like distributed around the sphere. So sort of the idea is to give us like a map of the whole the whole magnetic field, and we have pressure probes that go inside the sodium. Those work pretty well, yeah. So we have pressure measurements, of course, temperature measurements. We have to keep constantly monitoring the, the temperature uh, because, uh, for instance, if the temperature goes uh, above uh, 130 C's, well, so the the sodium is a metal and the, it has an expansion coefficient. So they ha the, if the temperature keeps going, uh, the, what's going to happen is that this, the the sphere might overfull. Oh. Yeah, um, so we gotta, we gotta... <laughs> and, and does it heat up as you're doing this experiment? Because yeah, yeah. of all the friction it, inside, Yeah, so we have yeah. cooling, we have cooling uh, uh, instruments too. Like, like we have a uh, way of cooling the, in case something goes yeah. wrong, we cool, we turn on like the cooling system, we keep the temperature like below 130. Okay. Yeah, so that, uh -huh. and we have these 31 magnetic uh, probes that give us this map of the magnetic field and temperature and pressure. That's, that's pretty much what we, what we have. Cool. Well, well, yeah. Thanks for talking to me. Yeah, okay. Thank you very much for the invitation, yeah. really. And I wish you the best. Cool. Yeah. Like um, what? <laughs> <laughs> like, how do people even think of experiments like that? Yeah, so yeah, I was shocked. This is a really, this is a really interesting sounding lab. <laughs> Especially when, like, coming from the Earth and planetary, like, I'm so used to field studies or even mm. if they're not field studies like we're 
we like get data from somewhere real and you know like I hear very <laughs> few like experimental totally experimental experiments experiments yeah well That's and yeah crazy. it is interesting that they're trying to recreate this process that happens in the earth and I mean they have this enormous sphere. It's three meters across. I mean, obviously, that's still a lot smaller than the Earth. But, yeah, it's yeah, it's pretty wild. Three meter sphere is big, though. <laughs> Filled with 12 tons of sodium. That's a lot of salt. Yeah. It's just a big bomb. Yeah, well, right. I remember in chemistry in high school that they, we had, like, a piece of sodium, like, the size of, like, a pea. And they were like, be really careful, because if It'll it gets wet, it will explode. Yeah. So, 12 tons. I can't imagine. Where Where is... This electromagnetic field, it's like in the, on the equator in the Earth? Is that where it like Right. Earth? Well, so the, um, so, you know, th so he was explaining like that there's the outer core of the Earth, which is a liquid. Yeah. And it's melted iron and nickel. And somehow the spinning of that, like there's an electric flow that creates a magnetic field. Um, and that's where our magnetic field comes from. And I don't fully understand, you know, I know like if you have a coil and you run electricity through it, that can create a magnet. That's like yep. an electric electromagnet is or know, electromagnet i've completely taken <laughs> magnets for granted until right now. <laughs> i have no idea so it's something like that process that creates that but you know i think there's limits to how well we understand how that works and that's what they're trying to improve the understanding of yeah <laughs> it's pretty incredible that was crazy that was really interesting <laughs> you know, just wow yeah I feel like boggled <laughs> just Right, well, so, like, we have, like, a North Pole and a South Pole, but then there's, like, smaller, more complex parts of the Earth's magnetic field. There's places where there are anomalies and things like that. Mm. So I don't know if that's part of what they're trying to get at. We have somebody, like, I just interviewed a few episodes ago, Lori Brown in our department, who studies how rocks hold the magnetic signature of the Earth over time. So that's how we know about those reversals, that the poles will just flip mm -hmm. suddenly, but we don't really know how or why, why it happens. And it doesn't happen at, like, a regular interval. Like, sometimes it's every 100,000 years, and then sometimes millions of years go by, and it doesn't happen. Oh, wow. Um, this next one is from uh, two scientists who created this program, STEM Seas, which is a program where they use um, research vessels when they don't have anything going on where they're just like moving from one place to another and there's no science team, they bring um, undergrad interns on to do like ocean research and under like just learn about the process of being like on a research vessel and things like that. I'm Sharon Cooper. I am at Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory of Columbia University and I work with the drilling, the scientific drilling program, um, IODP, and also with the STEM Seas program, which is our program to put undergraduates on board uh, the academic research fleet during transits. My name is John Lewis, and I am a professor of geoscience at Indiana University of Pennsylvania, an unfortunately named institution. <laughs> it causes a lot of confusion. Um, and I am uh, one of the uh, co-PIs with Sharon uh, of the STEM Seas Project, which we're very excited about. Uh, and I'm, although I'm involved with marine, a little bit of marine geology, most of my work is on land. I'm a structural geologist, mostly working in Taiwan and, and to a lesser extent in Central America. Cool. So how, how long has the STEM Seas program been going on and what, where did the idea come from to start this program? So it started in 2016. Uh, we were funded at the end of 2015 and the transit started in 2016. 
and the idea came from uh, working with the scientific drilling program for a while with the Jody's Resolution. We had always, or in the past decade, we have used the transits of that ship to, for education and outreach purposes, for getting educators on board, and so because available berths on the ship is moving and transiting, and it's um, mostly empty, so we wanted to use that capacity. And we, we wanted to provide opportunities for undergraduates to get to see, because they don't have so many opportunities to do that. And um, But the Joides is um, not in the U.S. very often, it's only one ship, um, so it's not very practical. So we started talking with the UNALS folks because they run uh, 19, it's 19, right? 19 or 19, 19 yeah. ships. And they also have transits that are often empty as well, except for the ship crew. And so those, that is capacity that we could use for undergraduates as well. Yeah, when um, Sharon runs something called the School of Rock for the IODP, and I was had the good fortune in, in 2012 to be one of the instructors on School of Rock, and we tied up in Curacao, and we were with John Snow, who's at the University of Houston, and Leslie Sauter, who's at uh, College of Charleston, and myself, and Jen Collins, who was also working for the um, IODP. And we did a transit to Bermuda, and it, the impact on the participants was so incredible. It's, it's it's such a high impact kind of experience to go to see that that got the 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 juices flowing for how could we do this for undergrads? And I sat in the co-chief in the chief scientist's office with John Snow, and we threw around you know these ideas. How can we make this bigger? How can we do this for undergrads? And that was the beginning for me of the of the the kind of the kernel, mm -hmm. uh, and then. Sharon moved to my neighborhood, which just happened to be incredibly fortuitous, so that we can spend some time in coffee shops scheming these kinds of things. And the idea of using the UNALS fleet came up, and we sketched it out. On a napkin, literally. On a napkin. <laughs> and actually, the timing was, we had the idea for a while, and then a solicitation came from the NSF that seemed to be incredibly ideally matched to mm. this. Um, it's called the Improving Undergraduate STEM Education Program, and in particular, they have a, a Pathways into the Geosciences uh, mechanism, and it was it was incredibly uh, fortuitous, I think. Nice, yeah, it's kind of an incredible program to make use of all of this space that's not being utilized, and and also get to expose undergrads to these great experiences. And right. the tax, we're paying for the transits anyway. Right, So yeah. it was really, I think the, 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 the folks at the NSF that fund the, the fleet, they are absolutely thrilled uh, to use this capacity yeah. more, more completely, and it, it rounds out the UNAL's impact, on broader impact, and the ship operators who operate the ships, we, um, we had to develop new relationships with them, and I think that's going really beautifully mm. so far. Yeah. yeah. Very yeah. Nice. So and and we, we wanted in particular to provide opportunities for students who might not get these kind of opportunities. So they might be first generation college students, they might be from underrepresented groups, they might be from um, community colleges, they might be from landlocked places that don't think about the ocean. Yeah. And a lot of that, and we wanted to look particularly at young students, freshmen and sophomores. We do sales sophomore a little bit older, but uh, particularly young students students who haven't decided yet what they want to do so that they can come on board and get really excited about it and maybe impact the direction that they go. I, call, I think of them as STEM curious. STEM curious, I like that term. <laughs> yeah, so it's not all science majors that are doing these. Right. They're undeclared, right. Okay. They're not ready yet. Maybe, yeah. maybe STEM, 
just am curious. Also, uh, we are trying to put generally at least one person who's from a different field, maybe English, maybe uh, literature, film studies, journalism, uh, because we think that the energy created with these different ways of thinking has power, and we hopefully generate a STEM champion in that process. So somebody who can be a voice, uh, a science communicator in some way, whether it's through film or poetry, it doesn't really matter. We're just trying to in enhance that. Yeah. Do you have a, a favorite trip that you've participated in or a favorite experience from the program? Well, so uh, Sharon has yet to, to sail. That should happen okay. sometime soon. I sailed in 2016 in the pilot study year on the third transit to to Seward from Seattle, <clears throat> and so it was fantastic. Uh, it was it was the only time that I've done it. Um, the students, it was pretty rough, uh, okay. and that's an, you know people. There's an extraordinary amount of bonding that that happens by being sick with each other. <laughs> Pro yeah, profoundly yeah. seasick. And so um, <laughs> uh, I, that, that adds a lot of, of at least an, an element to the bonding, uh, for sure. One of the things that is, is um, in terms of building the program, because we started from an IODP community framework, the, our initial contacts and on the people that we tapped to serve as mentors are folks that we knew from our quite extensive network from IODP. So that brought us, for example, right away to UMass. And Mark Leckie helped us with, with help to build the program, and then he sailed um, along with Kristen St. John, who's at James Madison, on our very first uh, STEM Seas Transit. They had been the very first people to sail on School of Rock. I mean, on uh, yes, on School of Rock. So we knew that they were going to be, that was the A-team, they were going to hit a home run and, and start the program off on the right foot. So, um, And that's how we ended up with um, Raquel. And Raquel has a, ha, is a graduate student at University of Massachusetts, and she's been um, she was such a great inspiration as a TA for the students that we decided to institute that position as a regular part of our program. We hadn't done that initially, oh, wow. so now we have a TA position on every expedition. It's an opportunity for graduate students to be a mentor, to serve as a bridge between the undergraduates and the uh, and the professors who are a little more senior. And um, it's been great. It's been super helpful uh, for everybody. And so, and the students, the, the near peer role is, is really important because the, what, one of the challenges we immediately faced uh, when we built STEM Seas is that most of the people that do marine geology, sadly, maybe sadly, it's just the, the demographic, it's pretty homogeneous. It's more than pretty homogeneous. It's mostly older white men with no hair and gray beards. Okay. And uh, that describes me. <laughs> That was an autobiographical and, description. And, and most, and my colleagues, and so finding mentors that could serve as good role models mm -hmm. is is uh, was immediately uh, recognized as a, a, a challenge. And so we're working to try to diversify the mentors. And and one mechanism is to is to the graduate students. Yeah. Get graduate students from more diverse places, more more communities represented, and it resonates with the students. Yeah. Based on their their feedback they provided to us. Right. Well, and this is one way to change that demographic, right? Like this program is bringing people in who might not have entered into this kind of experience otherwise. That's what we're hoping. Yeah. That's what we're hoping. Yeah. You certainly should look us up and tell your friends about it, especially if you're kind of 
you think you might be interested in STEM, but it's your first year of school and you're not quite sure, yeah. uh, check it out. What about for students who are maybe scared of an opportunity like this that seems a little bit intimidating? We try to, um, so one thing you can do is go look at our WordPress blog and see many of the posts from the past and that'll help contextualize it because it's not everybody uh, thrives at sea. That's, that's something it's a no. We try our best to, to describe those things in pre-transit pre uh, webinars. Um, so, uh, if you know... Yeah, we're happy to talk to anybody who's scared or unsure and we can tell them, yeah. and we can connect them with alumni so they can ask other students what, what it was like and how it, how it turned out. I mean, we, we yeah. support the students as much as we can. Yeah. So. Nice. That's great. Yeah, I feel like it's such a great opportunity. I feel like a lot of people might be drawn to it, but also really intimidated. But it's it's kind of taking that leap. Yeah. Of, of really yeah. yeah, we've had students sail who had never been on a plane before because when oh, they were wow. flying to the port, right? Yeah. They'd never seen the Milky Way before because they'd never been outside of their town where there was no light pollution. You know, like things like that. And so in addition to the kind of science first experiences, there's life first experiences. And, and that's great. Yeah. You know? I, I think the chance to have a profoundly transformative experience, uh, it's quite, it's, I'd say it's likely, you know, for many students, yeah. so, you know, if people that are up for that type, sort of uh, challenge, you know, should yeah. definitely talk to us. Yeah, I mean, it, it may well put them out of their comfort, comfort zone, but that's part of the learning process, and if students want to do that and expand their horizons, it's perfect for that. Yeah. So we're here at the AGU meeting, and are there some alumni from the program here? There are, yeah. yes, and a couple of, uh, at least one of them uh, gave a presentation about her experience on Monday. Yep. She gave a talk. Yeah. Um, and we've had, uh, two years ago at the GSA meeting, Geological Society of America meeting in Denver, we had a, a student who sailed with us, and she gave a talk. She sailed with Raquel, and she sailed, uh, she's a deaf student, and she gave her talk in ASL with a speaking interpreter for the rest of the audience. That in itself was quite powerful to see. Amazing. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. Um, so at the end of my radio show, I always play a little game called GTA, guess that acronym, um, to kind of like just poke fun at science for having a lot of jargon. Um, and normally I have a comedian co-host who we give the acronyms to and we make them try to guess what they mean. But since I'm the host in this situation, I don't know if you want to, if you have any acronyms that you use a lot in SEMSEs if you want to try to stump me. But you might, I don't know if you... Uh, UNALS? You UNALS. Oh, yeah, UNALS. Let's see. I, sh I feel like I sh I've heard it and I should know what it is. It's really... Let's see. It's not mellifluous. <laughs> uh, UNALS. United... Raquel's shaking her head. No, no, no. Um, uh, national operations for lovely sailors. <laughs> Did I hit it? That's, that's good. It, yeah, right? that's, that's good. It. That's good. <laughs> we might have to talk to that. that. No, what's it stand for? It's the University National Oceanographic Laboratories System. Oh, okay. National Oceanographic Laboratories. Cool. System. So this is the whole fleet of vessels yes. that are doing ocean research that, that are, are operated by uh, U.S. universities. And, no. and research institutes. And research institutes. Okay. Yeah, like, uh, like Woods Hole and Scripps. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. So yeah, fun. thank you. Thank you very much for your interest. Okay, so yeah, STEM sees.
That's so cool. Wow. Yeah. I've heard about the program from people at UMass, but like it's great to hear it from the people who created it and like how it happened. It's yeah, just this cool idea. Yeah, them being like, we need to get more undergrads involved. How can we do that? And kind of putting together the pieces of like there's this opportunity. Yeah, it's a really cool is there a certain age that you have to be to do that? Do I wonder. I, You know, they said they were looking for, like, under. early undergrads, they think especially people who are undecided. But I don't yeah. know if that's an age limit or if it's maybe just, just so. like, are you a freshman or a sophomore? And I think, you know, it sounds like anybody could apply. Yeah. So I would, you know, I, I think feel anybody like the considering person I know just go for it. went on that School of Rock thing. Oh, really? Yeah. Like, nice. And she's younger than yeah. college age. She's oh, okay. super smart, though. Nice. But I feel like she got to do that. Yeah, I feel like one. Um, there's another acronym that came up a lot in that interview that they didn't, I think, Same. tell us. IODP. Yeah, what is that? Okay, yeah. Do you want to do uh, a guess, Lisa? It's a, you don't have to if you don't want to. You I know guess this one, so I won't. I'll yeah. hold back. It comes up a lot in geoscience, but I think the broader public is not so aware of it. And this mm -hmm. is something that I think is also an effort, you know, like the way that everybody knows what NASA is. Maybe everybody yeah. should know what IODP is because it's a really big international program. It is. DP. So obviously the international. Hey, o yeah, nice. International oceanic oceanic ocean. Oh, you're you're on a good track right now. International Ocean Department. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, you were close. It's really in, close. All right, international oceanography. Department of People. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, you were really close. It's the in, do you want to say what it's, it is, Caroline? It's the International Ocean Drilling Program. Drilling Program. So oh, it's actually, drilling. Duh. So it was originally the International Ocean Drilling Program, and oh, now they changed it because they were like, ooh, drilling is a bad word. That's <laughs> what I was thinking. Like. <laughs> associated with like the, so it? the Ocean Discovery Program. Oh, <laughs> that's right. That's so right. They kept drilling. the same acronym, but they changed the word. That was confused people who were like doing the old IODP. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it's the same program. It too. all means the same thing. Yeah. yeah. And so they have several big ships. Um, one of the main ones is the Joides Resolution, which they kind of casually refer to. Oh, yeah, the Joides. Yeah, yeah or the JR. Yeah. Um, which is this ship that's, like, traveling all over the world. They do, like, I, th I think is it two-month missions two usually month at missions. a time to different wow. places. So they have, like, a science team for two months, and they'll go someplace with, like, a specific goal. And then they just do that all the time. <laughs> like every yeah. two months, they have like a new mission with then some with time some in between time, yeah. to like get to a new place or sometimes to do work on the boat and things like that. It's yeah. Exciting. It's a really cool program. Um, this is where like a lot of cores for understanding yeah. past climate have come from and like past ocean dynamics and lots of different, yeah, awesome science has come out of there. Yeah. And so that's the, the really cool thing about like, so it's the drilling. Yeah. was the drilling program yeah. <laughs> but it's really just coring so like drilling we like t drill down to get these cores of both sediment and rock mm -hmm. that you can get from the bottom of the ocean um and i think this is really one of the only programs that exists for like studying the deep ocean but something <laughs> that i loved about what they what they were talking about is um i think when we say geology like when I got to college, I had no idea geology was a subject that you mm. could study. I had absolutely no idea what it was. But then we talk about, it like, it's the study of rocks and minerals. And that's, I think, what people think of. That's what I would think of yeah. as a normal, like, layperson. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's really common. And I think we struggle to really kind of break that. But this is one of the ways that we can do that. We're like, geology is the study, or geoscience is, like, 
very broadly the study of Earth, which includes the crust and the rocks, but it also That's includes the, the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. It also includes the oceans. It includes the cryosphere, which is just the ice. Yeah. So all of our glaciers, like mountain glaciers, Antarctica, Greenland, it's like the whole Earth. And I think that's something so cool about this is we're, like, breaching the, like, we're not going to take you to Wyoming and look at rocks. We're going to take <laughs> you into the middle of the ocean. Right. And, like, it's just very, very cool. Yeah. Cool. Nice. Um, okay, we have one last interview. Should we move on? All yeah. Right. Okay, this it. one's a little bit different. Okay. I'll just say that. <laughs> Um, so my name is Kimberly Fakey, and I'm a doctoral candidate at the Center for the Advanced Study of Human Paleobiology at George Washington University. Cool. So go ahead and tell me about your research. <laughs> um, so my research is how we reconstruct um, diet in the past, specifically thinking about Neanderthal diet. And we're interested in diet because it's a really big selective pressure on biological evolution. Um, dietary adaptations are very important, we think, in the evolution of our species, and Neanderthals being our close extinct cousins, we're pretty interested in their ecology and what made them who they are in relation to what makes us who we are. And um, one of the ways that we can reconstruct diet in the fossil record is by using nitrogen isotopes. Nitrogen isotopes are really neat because they track trophic level very well. So herbivores eaten by carnivores and so on up the food chain have enriching or enriched concentrations of the heavy isotope of nitrogen, nitrogen 15. Um, And it forms a pretty nice continuum between plants, bacteria, herbivores, and carnivores, and so on. And you can take collagen out of a fossil that you dig out of the ground and measure its isotopic composition and plot it on this continuum, and it can tell you something about the amount of meat that that fossil organism ate. And we do this all the time with ancient human populations in the past, archaeologists have applied this all across the world to different human populations. Um, The furthest back in time we can take it is Neanderthals because that's the limit for collagen preservation usually in the fossil record. Uh, How long ago is that? We can get back to about 40,000 years at this point. So late late surviving Neanderthals, it's you know sort of the last hurrah of the Neanderthals as a species. Um, We're working on pushing it further back but it's very complicated. Um, But the values that we trust that we have been able to get, we have um, we have about 10 of them at this point, and they all place Neanderthals at an extremely high trophic level, higher than carnivores. So which, for, for people who don't know what trophic yes. level means, maybe, like, what does that mean? So a trophic level is basically what step in the food chain are you at? Okay. Are you an animal that's eating other animals? Are you an animal that's eating plants? Are you an animal that's eating bacteria? Oh. Or are you a plant? Yeah. So um, they're, they're coming out at a higher level of meat eating than carnivores are. Okay. By these isotopic measurements. Okay. Which is odd because we know that modern humans cannot survive on a diet like this. Okay. Um, modern humans who have attempted to eat this sort of diet are very unhealthy. They end up um, with nutrient deficiencies mm. and without the intervention of modern medicine, they die fairly quickly. Wow. Okay. Um, and we assume that Neanderthals are pretty similar to us physiologically. And so we have a suspicion that that's you know, not such a good situation for them to be in. We also know from excavations of Neanderthal sites that they're eating a good number of plants, a pretty wide variety of plants. We have plant residues on their teeth. Um, we have burnt plant residue in their fireplaces. We have other sorts of evidence that tells us they were cooking plants. Um, 
So these two proxies that we use do not really agree with each other all that well. And since we trust the plant evidence a little bit more, we wondered, okay, is there something wrong with the way that we interpret this nitrogen dietary proxy? Um, and since Neanderthals plot a lot like hyenas on this isotopic curve, we wondered if there's some overlap in their dietary behavior. Meaning, are Neanderthals not just hunting large animals, are they also maybe scavenging carcasses that have been laying out for a couple of days or a week or something? They live in a pretty difficult environment, and so they're probably not going to pass up the chance at a food resource if they happen upon a carcass that's even remotely edible. So this is a pretty reasonable thing that we could be testing. Um, so my research is experimental rotting. I do, <laughs> I basically, I let meat rot and I measure what happens to the nitrogen isotope values over time. Um, trying to get at the difference between fresh meat and slightly rotted meat in terms of its baseline isotope signature, so that if Neanderthals ate a carcass, are they getting a higher level of nitrogen than they would if they got fresh meat? And so what we're finding is that over the first week, nitrogen values are enriching at a statistically significant rate and an ecologically significant amount, um, which could help explain part of this mechanism. But what we're also finding is that as meat is drying out, its nitrogen values are actually decreasing. So these, these two different results kind of point us to the fact that we don't really understand this dietary proxy all that well, or as well as we thought. And what we need to do is to continue to investigate all the possible inputs of nitrogen into the system for these Neanderthals, and consider the fact that they may not just be eating one type of thing, they may be doing behavioral things that alter their signatures, such as cooking and fermenting and pre preserving their meat. Um, that all of these things have similar protein breakdown processes that we expect will alter their nitrogen signatures. Nice, that's really cool. Um, does it affect, um, I was gonna say, like, does it affect like the nutrition or something? Like, is it better if something has like heavy nitrogen isotopes? Or is this, is it a heavy isotope? I didn't Yeah, it's a yeah. heavy isotope, yeah. <laughs> um, we think that the impact on nutrition is not that significant okay. unless you're deficient in vitamins somehow. So vegetarians plot, you know, sort of in the middle on this on this graph, they're eating okay. domestic plants and, you know, there's some differences in the isotope values, but um, generally speaking, if you're getting all your vitamins from various sources, it doesn't really matter what your isotope signature okay. is. Um, it's just a little clue we use looking back in time to try to understand this stuff. Cool. Well, thank you so much. It was yeah, nice to meet nice you. Yeah, to really meet cool you. research. Thank you. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> so this was like a little bit even beyond what I expected to see. I know I said like, oh, there's so many different things people study at AGU. And this was like, I was like, what? You do experimental rotting? <laughs> but that Play just, with rotting meat. Yeah, it goes to show like how many different aspects of the earth are covered under this umbrella. Totally incredible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I never would have even thought like, that <laughs> something like that would need to be studied for science's sake, but right. listening to that, it kind of makes sense. It's very interesting, and the ways that you just find stuff out, like all the different kind of experiments that you do to get to a conclusion of something. So, yeah. Pretty interesting. 
Well, I think that experiment gets to like a lot of the experiments that we do in labs is like trying to refine these proxies that we mm. use to look at the past where we're like, this, these results don't really make sense based on this like method that we're using. So let's mm. figure out what's wrong with the method. Right. Um, and so I think that that though, that process of like, hmm, maybe something's wrong, not like that our results are wrong or that these results are true, like getting at what's going on with our method of looking at thousands of years ago is, I mean, really difficult. So I think that is it's like a very common practice. Yeah. Well, that oh. was all the interviews from AG. <laughs> no acronyms for that one? <laughs> no, she was like, no, I don't do acronyms. <laughs> just, just no. But we do still have some acronyms from Caroline yeah. that we need to talk about. Oh, so um, I don't know if you have any final thoughts about AG before we move on to our own final game of GTA. Um, I don't know. I think th- I, I just think something really cool about like geology or earth science um, is just how broad it is, and I think that was a really good selection of interviews to be <laughs> like cool. the oceans, old like the moon, old human diets, the moon, yeah, the, like magnetic poles, and <laughs> right. me studying mud. Like it's just all very cool. <laughs> the diversity of projects that there are, and I I wish more people knew about earth science. Yeah, earth science is awesome. Cool. So we have one last order of business. <laughs> so we have some acronyms that have been provided by Caroline. So we're gonna give these to Lisa and she's gonna try to guess what they mean. So you have to you have to recall in your brain what we talked about like an hour or so ago. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> and that may or may not even relate to what these acronyms I can, are I can directly. Give you hints. We'll see. All right. We'll see how, but you're we'll not, see how this you're goes. not it's not a high pressure situation, no. hopefully. Well, yeah it is. <laughs> I always say that and the comedians are like, no, this feels terrible. No, it's just, just there. <laughs> no. I said, yes, I'm going to come on this show so we can find out how non-smart I really am. Uh, I think knowing acronyms is not a good measure of intelligence. It isn't. It's definitely not because I know a lot too. But. Yeah. Everyone has their version of acronyms. Yeah, um, I own. Yeah. So your first acronym, Lisa, is XRF. I certainly can't figure out the X at all. That's just mm. like not gonna happen. The, the X and the R go together. Mm. They're like kind of one word. That's a good clue. Okay. Oh. This is still hard. One. It's so hard. For yeah. Me. Think about when you go to the dentist. I don't do that. Uh. So, <laughs> I'm kidding, I do. Just haven't been in a while. Um, uh, Long screech. Oh, X-ray. Yeah. Uh, okay, X-ray. Film? X-ray photo? No, not X-ray photo. X-ray. This last one might be a little bit hard. I think that one's very long. I got X-ray. Um, X-ray fluorescence. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> fluorescence. So we I... take, like, a scan of the cores and we X-ray them so you can see the, like, relative density. So if you get, like, a layer of sand, it's really, really high density. And so that helps. It's like looking at the bones in your hand. You know, you, you can, can see, see like, them. the relative densities of the different parts of the sediment. And so oh. that helps us, like, find cool layers in, in oh, the sediment. Neat. Yeah. Oh, wow. so, so it's you, really just x-rays. You take an x-ray of the core, huh? Mm-hmm. Do you do that right in your lab? Uh, what was mm-hmm. that last word again? Fluorescence. Fluorescence. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's a rough one. And yeah. then so with that x-ray, we also uh, are getting the relative abundances of, like, all of these elements that I talked about, like lead and zinc and iron and whatever else you want to look at and you get all those too cool do you ever sneak in like a tooth x-ray <laughs> <laughs> i'd have to like take my head off just you know save no, some it's money like a very your... special like just core scanning oh, okay. so you like 
like takes the core through and it's super cool. Specialized equipment. Yeah, we nice. have a lot of cool equipment. I, I was thinking you must have to have some really awesome yeah. equipment to do your job. Nice. Okay. Our next acronym. Are you ready for another one? I am. Okay. This one is GPR. GPR. Geo. Hmm. GPR. Ah, uh, give me a hint. Um. You can't even give me a hint. It's so hard. <laughs> you don't think it's gonna help. Coming at these now from having done the other acronyms, I'm like, man, these yeah, are hard. hard. I don't know what <laughs> they are. Like now, if we were talking um, about like HIV and AIDS stuff, I could get all these so, acronyms. No problem. Th- this is a piece of equipment that we use in the field where um, you it's. Geo, it's called geophysical equipment, which is yeah. not what those letters are. Okay. Um, but <laughs> so you're like r- taking this piece. I don't know how to use the words without it's like playing taboo. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> you can't say the word. It's like sending out signals to uh, see how thick the sediment is. Okay. Where you are so Ground, thick. probing, radioactive. Waves, That's, radio waves. You are close. That's like How's really that? close. Hey, ground penetrating radar. Hey, like, yeah. that's pretty good it. for me. Yay, yay! I am feeling less. That was a good one. This was very exciting and enlightening. Yeah, those t- interviews were so cool. Yeah, they I really were amazing. You're a very them. good interviewer. Oh, I love it. You're yeah. very probing and like, <laughs> you ask good questions. Lots of practice. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah, it's fun to do. Cool. Okay, well, thanks nice. so much for joining me, you guys. Thanks. You, okay. Yeah, thanks. Okay. You just listened to Lab Talk with Laura on 91.1 FM WMUA Amherst. Today I was joined in the studio by geoscientist Caroline Ladlow and comedian Lisa Wentworth, and we listened to interviews from the American Geophysical Union meeting uh, in 2018. We heard interviews from Patrick O'Brien, Sean Bath, Ruben Rojas, Sharon Cooper, John Lewis, and Kimberly Fakey. The jingle at the beginning of our show was written and produced by Matt Woodland. Online hosting of Lab Talk with Laura is supported by the Emmerich Lab and the Polymer Science Department. You can find Lab Talk with Laura on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and anywhere else that you listen to podcasts. You can go check out our full archive of episodes. Thank you so much for listening. Keep it locked to 91.1 FM WMUA Amherst.